You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In March of last year, 2020, we had a meeting with the planning manager for the city of Huntington Beach to request a modification to our conditional use permit. This is a picture of the first page of the conditional use permit that we have with the city. And that meeting began a process for the city to grant us the permission that is required to build the new kids' building that we plan to move into in just four weeks from now. Even though we own this property as a church, the city has the authority to set the conditions around how we use this property. Now, who gave them the right to do that? God did. In Romans chapter 13, we are told that God establishes governing authorities. And we are told the two conditions that God sets these authorities up, and that is to administer justice and to provide protection. And that is a very good thing for us. For example, as it relates to this city, if your neighbor decided to, st- to run a used car dealership on your street, that would change your neighborhood. You may think he is or they are, but if they really did decide to run a used car dealership out of their house, that would not be fair to you and your neighbors. So the city steps in to make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen. If you enter a building without the proper amount of exits, your your safety is in in danger, at greater risk. So the city sees to it that every building has the proper amount of exits in case of fire. And the conditions go on and on. The city is charged by God with the responsibility to see that, that we are safe and that we're good neighbors to each other. Now, the construction of this building has required 16 permits so far. The word permit is short for permission. Permission always comes with conditions. There are capacity conditions. Every building, every room has a capacity limit. There are parking conditions. There are types of use conditions. We can gather for a gathering like this. We cannot manufacture anything on this site. All different kinds of conditions. And if we don't abide by these conditions, as stipulated in our conditional use permit, the city has the authority to stop our use of this property. But the God who gave the city the authority to determine the conditions of our use has some conditions of his own. And this is what we're going to be looking at in this series. Turns out we are not only citizens of this city. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are also members of the body of Christ. And as a church, we are subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. And it turns out he has some conditions of his own whenever a church takes possession of a property and begins to use it. And if we don't stick to those conditions, he will not suddenly move out one Sunday and padlock the doors. He will simply step back from everything that we are doing. He will withdraw his blessing, and he will pull the plug of his power on this church. The world is full of church buildings where the hand of God used to be. Buildings that are far more impressive than anything we will ever be able to build on this site. Let me share a few with you. Here's a picture of Westminster Abbey. This is in London. It was built in 1090. This is where the royal weddings take place. So we've all seen the inside of this church, and it's amazing. Its seating capacity is 2,000. The local average attendance on a Sunday is 20. 
Here's an older church. This is the Canterbury Cathedral. It was started by Augustine. Again, far more impressive than anything we're ever going to be able to build here. The size of this congregation, the last time I checked on Sunday, is 17. Years ago, my wife and I toured an amazing church building in Germany. And this church had closed its doors in the late 80s, and it was now used to train circus acrobats. Why? Well, the government didn't oppose them. I don't know exactly why the church closed, but I suspect, as in almost every case, it's because this church ceased to maintain some of the conditions that God has on His church. So we as a church do not want to become yet another church on the landscape of where God used to be. So as we prepare to move into our newest building, in the four weeks leading up to this, we're going to consider the conditions under which God will bless the use not of just the new kids' building, but of this site and all of these buildings. As Dale said, the parking lot went in this last week, and so for the first time since the construction fences went up, it doesn't look like a construction site. There, there's more inspections to pass. There's a certificate of occupancy to be granted by the city. So we'll see if we can get in four weeks. It looks like we can, but that's our plan right now. And so in the time leading up to that, we're going to look at the conditions that God has for us as a church, the conditions of his blessing, his hand of blessing on us. And our guide is going to be the beginning of the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation is a fascinating book. It's a confusing book, but it gives us a view of what the events and the powers of this world look like from the perspective of heaven. And it starts with what heaven considers to be the greatest power here on earth, and that is the church. That's not the answer most people would give if asked, what is the greatest power on earth? Almost nobody would say, oh, it's the church. They might point to a government, a superpower like ours. They might point to the free market system, the stock market. They would not point to the church. But that's what heaven says is the greatest power here on earth. It just doesn't look like it from where we sit. I mean, we know the church. At least we know this church. And it's just made up of flawed ordinary people like you and me. It's really not that impressive. But it turns out there's much, go much more going on behind the scenes than we can see. So let's take a look at it. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Here's what it says. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Turns out this is Jesus dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword, his words. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. John is the one who saw the vision of Revelation and the one who wrote this vision down as he was instructed. 
John was the circuit-riding pastor of seven small churches that were located in seven cities along a Roman postal route in what is now modern-day Turkey. In the opening scene of this vision, John hears this voice that sounds like rushing waters, and he turns around to see who this voice belongs to. The voice belonged to Jesus Christ. But before he sees Jesus in all of his splendor, notice the first thing that John sees. He sees seven golden lampstands. That's the first thing that's mentioned. What are these seven lampstands? A few verses later, in verse 20, we are told what they are along with the seven stars. It says the mystery of the seven stars. These are the seven stars that Jesus held in his hand that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of these seven churches that John's the pastor of. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's the interesting thing. Only after John sees the seven lampstands does he then see Jesus. He sees the lampstands first, and then he sees Jesus. How is that possible? Well, it was because Jesus was, as it says, among the lampstands. He was not out in front. He was walking among the lampstands. So that's why John turned, and the first thing he saw was the lampstands, because Jesus was in the middle of the lampstands. He wasn't prominent out in front of them. The point of this vision is pretty clear. You cannot separate Jesus Christ from his church. Jesus is among his church. He's not separated from. He walks among the church. You can't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and ignore his church. They go together. And what that means in part is that whenever a church, a local church, like one of these seven or this one, begins to pull away from Jesus, they are literally pulling on the plug that keeps them connected to the very power of heaven. And after this vision of Jesus walking among the churches, John is given seven letters to deliver to each of these seven churches the next time he makes his round on his circuit to these seven churches. And each of these seven letters contained in Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3 contain a warning, a, a call to repent, a call to return back to something that was true of them. And these seven letters... It's going to be our focus in these next four weeks. They contain the four conditions under which Jesus will walk among the churches. These are the conditions that we will consider in the weeks to come. Because if these conditions are not met, then Jesus will leave that church and pull the plug on that, the power of that church. The very first church is Ephesus. And the warning is stated this way to that church in Revelation 2.5. Jesus says in his letter dictated John to this church, consider how far you have fallen. Repent, which means turn back around and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You will lose your authority, your power. So if we pull away from Jesus, he will pull away from us, from this church. 
he will take our lampstand. Now, there is going to be no ceremony on earth to mark that occasion, but what is done in heaven eventually shows up on earth. The power of God will leave this place, and all that will be left for sh to show for it will be the land, the concrete, the steel. So the first condition that we're going to look at for every church is that we stay close to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Every church that stays close to Jesus is marked by two commitments that show up in these seven letters. There is an inward commitment that we're going to look at first, and then there is an outward commitment. Inward facing, outward facing. First, the inward commitment. This is amongst us as individuals who are part of this church. We are to have a commitment to hear God speak to us as a church. These seven cities have all now been, uh, uh, what's the word, excavated by archaeologists. They found no amazing church structures. And it's pretty obvious why. First century churches were pretty small. They were under a lot of persecution, so most of them would meet at night to avoid detection. So that's why no archaeologist could say, oh, here's the building. Here's the place where the church in Ephesus or the church in Pergamum or the church in Sardis met. There was no evidence of their existence. But what no archaeologist could ever uncover was the fact that these seven cities marked places on a map where people showed up and God spoke to them. That's what church is. Each of the seven letters said different things to each church, but they all shared this one sentence. Here's the sentence. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not the first time these words are recorded in the Bible. Jesus himself said, he who has an ear, let him hear, seven times in Matthew and Mark and Luke. He said that phrase often. But when he writes this letter to these seven churches, he adds a phrase to this well-known phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. Notice the words that are added after that initial set of words. He who has an ear, let him hear. And here's what's added. What the Spirit says to the churches. You see, now that Jesus is no longer walking the earth in a physical body, his method of speaking to his people has changed. We don't gather around the Sea of Galilee to hear Jesus speak as he did on the Sermon on the Mount. He's not physically doing that anymore. But now Jesus speaks to us through what the New Testament often refers to as the body of Christ, the church. Now, this doesn't mean that he can't or he won't speak to us individually. He will still do that, and we should still sit down as individuals with a copy of the Bible to read his words and to listen to what the Spirit might say to us individually. But there's something unique and different that happens when we gather together as a church. We gather to hear what the Spirit says to this church. These seven moments and letters were not 
the only time the Spirit spoke to a specific church. This is what the Spirit does every time a local church gathers. And so whenever we gather as a church, the volume is turned up so that we might collectively hear God speak to us. A good friend who is part of this church several years ago told me that he was going to he wasn't going to be able to be here the next Sunday due to a work conflict. Made sense. And not that he needed to ask my permission. Nobody needs to ask my permission to not attend. But he said, you know, I'll be able to catch up. I'll watch the message online, which is true. And then he said, I know it's not the same as being here. I hadn't said anything up to this point. But the question I want to ask is this. Why isn't it the same as not being here? Let's think about that. What, why not? I mean, the entire service now is online. And thanks to COVID, it's much higher quality than it's ever been. And we will continue to be online. So what that means is you can sing along from the comfort of your home and not miss a word of the message. In fact, you have an advantage. You can even pause. <laughs> if you need to go to the bathroom and get something to eat, you can rewind and listen to the parts of this message that you zoned out on. I know nobody here zones out, but maybe at home you might zone out. And so rather than right now thinking, wait, what did he say? I was planning lunch. You, you can rewind and go back and not miss a single thing. So apart from the donuts and the coffee, what exactly would you miss out on by not being here on Sunday? What you would miss is the gathering. That's what you would miss. You see, the power of God's words spoken to us as we gather are amplified and customized in a way that doesn't occur when it's recorded and listened to or even listened to live. So it's not about the information, just the information. It's not just about the words. It's also about the gathering to hear those words. If it was just about getting the information in the Bible out there, it would be better for us to focus all of our money and all of our efforts on trying to figure out how we can get on Christian radio or produce some kind of TV show or continue to enhance and push our online presence. Those are fine. But they can never match the fact that when the church gathers... The Spirit of God shows up to speak to that gathering in a way that cannot be recorded or duplicated ever again. And if you weren't here for that speaking, for that time, you missed it. Now, I'm not saying you should never miss a Sunday. I mean, I take vacations. I miss Sundays. And if you're sick... Please, don't come here. You know, freak everybody out. Stay home. Watch online. If you need a note from your pastor, I'd be happy to write you one if that make you feel better. But what I'm talking about is the fact that we often miss out on, the, you know, on this because of it's just inconvenient or there's other priorities. And we think to ourselves, well, I can listen online or I can read the Bible myself when what we are missing is something that has uniquely occurred here 
we will miss a one-time only appointment when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Sure, there's going to be another gathering next Sunday, but it's still a big, it's still a big miss. And what I've noticed is oftentimes what God says to me and to other people doesn't even come from the stage. There's a conversation. Maybe God wanted to speak to you about something in your life, and it'll come up in a conversation before you leave this campus. I don't know. It's happened to me. We can't even prepare for that. We can't record that. We can't produce that. That only happens as a result of gathering. Yes, there's a lot going on out there in this world. And our lives are very busy. But all of that can wait right now. Because right now, God is speaking. And there is nothing we need more than to hear from him. Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. This prophecy, this book of Revelation, was to be read aloud to the churches. What that means is when we gather as a church, you are hearing what God has directed those of us who teach to teach. There is no option for you to pick and choose your favorite verses that fit with your agendas. Oftentimes, God leads me to teach on some passages in Scripture that I know are going to step on toes. But that's, that's what we are charged to do. We are charged to listen to everything the Spirit says to us. Not just pick the verses we like and get rid of the ones we don't like. There is... In this hour, there's no squeezing God in and his word into the tiny cracks of your busy life as you're going to and fro. No, we gather together, and we listen together, and we worship together. And when a church stops listening, Jesus stops walking with that church. And that day is usually not noticed, but a slow death begins. That's the inward commitment. Now the outward commitment. A church that Jesus walks among has a commitment to be a light in this dark world. It comes from the image that we get from this vision of how heaven sees us. We are a lampstand, as it says in Revelation 1.20 again. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, these seven small churches. Each had a lampstand from the perspective of heaven. You know, the most dominant impression of the vision of Jesus in chapter 1 is light. All kinds of images and metaphors of light. Verse 16 says his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. We don't know of a brighter light than that. Like everything in Revelation, this is not the first time we've seen this particular theme in the Bible. Revelation kind of goes through the images and the themes of Scripture from heaven's perspective. Throughout the Bible, light is a metaphor for God's presence. 
God's first words in the Bible are, let there be what? Light. When Jesus came to earth, one of the first things he said is, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Our life is dependent on light. We don't do well in the dark, whether it's physical darkness or personal darkness. In the dark, we get lost. In the dark, we lose perspective. In the dark, our fears multiply. In the dark, we are isolated. We are alone. We don't know what to do and which way to turn. We don't see our life in any bigger context. And the deepest of all darknesses is to be isolated from God, the one in whose image we were created. This is the darkness that Jesus came to address. Jesus, as he said, is the light of the world. And what that means is he invites everyone to follow him out of the darkness. And as churches, we are the lampstands of that light. What's the purpose of a lampstand? Well, the lampstand's purpose is to position the light prominently, to elevate the light in a particular location. Now, let's be clear. We are not the light. We're not that impressive. Jesus is the light. But our purpose is to position our church and our lives in such a way that people have the best chance they can to see the light that we are following. Each of the seven letters to these seven churches, they have different particular content. But in addition to that one phrase that I mentioned that they all share, they all follow kind of a similar outline. The outline has, has three parts to it. And these three parts really describe the responsibilities that every church has as a lampstand of the light of Jesus Christ. The first responsibility is to persevere. All of these seven letters begin by commending these churches for enduring in spite of tremendous persecution and tremendous opposition. They have persevered through a lot of hard stuff. In all kinds of different attacks, they have not given up. And this points to the fact that as a lampstand, one of the critical things that must be true of us is we must stand. That's the key word in lampstand. A lamp on the ground is not going to promote the light. We must stand. We must stand for what God says is true when the world around us keeps changing its mind about what is true and what is good. We must stand and not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ, even though we will increasingly be ridiculed. We must stand. Because if we don't stand, then how can we be a lampstand? The second word that describes the second responsibility is the word purity. After a commendation for persevering, the next thing you find in all seven of these letters are these six words. Yet I hold this against you. 
The this is something different for each of these seven churches. But they are commended for persevering. And then Jesus turns his attention to, but here's a problem. Here's something that needs to be changed. Yet I hold this against you. To the church in Ephesus, this is the first church. This is the one we're going to be looking at next week. Jesus says, this is what I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love. For every church, it's a different sin. But the concern in every case is purity. You know, modern lamps not only have a stand, they also have a shade. The purpose of the shade is to reflect the light, diffuse it more broadly in a particular room or place. And this is a good image of the way people see Jesus right now, his light. They don't see Jesus directly like when he walked the streets of this world. People see the light of Jesus Christ reflected through his followers, like us. Now, seeing us is never as bright, never as impressive as seeing Jesus would be. But as Christians, the word means little Christs, and as a church, we aim to reflect Jesus accurately. That requires us to keep the lampshade of our lives clean. Now, no one is perfect, and no church reflects Jesus without any distortion. But personal purity is a matter that we must take seriously as a church and as individuals who are part of this church. Because if our lives are characterized by sin, that's what people are going to see. And it will prevent people from seeing the light of Christ. So if we do sin, we confess that sin. We confess it to those we've wronged. We clean up the lampshade and we accept the forgiveness of Jesus. And this is an ongoing process. Because if we don't do it, what happens to a lampshade? You just leave? It gets pretty dusty and pretty dirty. The third responsibility of every church is to provide spiritual protection. The seven letters all end with these words, to the one who is victorious. So it begins with a commendation for persevering. The middle contains a warning of sin that must be confessed, and it always ends with a statement of, to the one who is victorious. And this points to the fact that the church is not only to be the place where the light of Jesus shines in this dark world, it is also a place where God intends tremendous protection, where victory over darkness has its best chance. Now, we tend to miss this when we think of church. We think of church as a, a place to go or a place to visit. But from heaven's perspective, this gathering is a fortress for you and your family against the forces of darkness that are determined to destroy you, to defeat you, to see that you are not victorious. In a sense, this is kind of like gathering around a fire in the woods at night. You know, as we show up and worship and listen and encourage one another, we're adding yet another log onto this long burning fire that warms our souls it increases the brightness and gives us direction for this next week. And the brighter the fire burns, 
the further back into the shadows, the evil that stalks us all fades. I don't know if you've ever had the experience out in the woods seeing the eyes back in the trees and being grateful the fire is burning bright. That's the way it is. Like wild animals in the forest, evil is pushed back as we gather to worship. And you decide to go solo, you decide to not gather around the campfire of the gathering of the church, I promise you, the enemy will eat your lunch. He will destroy you and yours. And then we don't just spend the week huddled around the fire. No, then we leave the fire. We go back out into this dark world to be the light of Jesus in the places he's assigned us, in the neighborhoods we live, the places we work. To be his light, to be a part of his efforts to rescue as many as will respond. So in the flow of history, we don't look like much as we gather this morning. There will be no news vans that will pull up outside unless we do something really stupid. The news vans will not show up and report on all the amazing going-ons inside this building. But in this place, and many others like it around this city and the world today, God is speaking in a way that will occur only now and only here and nowhere else. So we are gathered to listen. And if we could see what this really looks like, we would see the one whose face shines like the sun in all of its brilliance. We would see him, Jesus Christ, walking along with this lampstand. And we'd see the angel held in his hand that is assigned to protect this church. This is what heaven sees. We don't. This is what heaven sees. So this hour is not just one of the many things we do. This is the high point of this in every week. But if we let the fire burn down and the embers grow cold, this will be yet another place where God used to be and where God used to speak. May that never happen here. But whether it happens here will be up to all of us. We all bear responsibility for this. So I invite you to join us in the weeks leading up to the dedication on December 5th of the New Kids Building as we consider the other conditions under which Jesus will walk among us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warmth of your word, the truth, the light of it to show us in this dark world the next steps to take. I thank you for this gathering of men and women, and young adults and children who have set their hearts to follow you. Father, I pray you would help us to persevere in the face of mounting opposition. Face, I pray that you would help us to face our own sin, to be honest about it, to confess it to you, and if we need help, to others. 
that we might reflect you as accurately as we can. And I pray that you would protect us. I pray particularly for the children for whom our culture is coming. God, I pray you would strengthen the fathers and the mothers as they raise their children. Pray that the building that is being completed would be a place where the truth of your gospel and the encouragement that you bring burns bright and warm. And we pray that the next generation would be raised to know you, to walk with you, so that you might walk with us through the next generation. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.